Welcome to the Summit County HealthCast, a podcast to improve the health and wellness of residents in Summit County, Utah. Join us as we interview local experts, professionals, and more to provide you with the best health and wellness tips Summit County has to offer. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Summit County HealthCast. I'm here today with Catherine McMullen, who is a critical infrastructure specialist from the Division of Emergency Management in the Department of Public Safety here in Utah. How are you today, Catherine? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Great. So this is a topic that people might not think of with all the water we've had this time of year. (laughs) Um, But what we're talking about today and an interesting subject that I'm sure everyone will learn something from is what you do during an emergency with water. So where you get it, how you take care of it, and other things like that. And again, with all the water we've had, I'm sure it's not on everyone's minds, but as we'll learn in this interview, the chances of going out with water in a major emergency are pretty high, so we'll talk about what you can do to prepare for it. So before we get into that, you want to just give us a short, really quick rundown of a little bit about you professionally and what you do? Sure, sure. Well, as a critical infrastructure specialist, one of the things we do in emergency management is we work with our utility providers all the time um, to make sure that we have great collaboration and coordination, and, and if during an event they needed any support from us or just so that we could create keep communication with them... Um, we work all the time so that we have good relationships. And that's given me a unique perspective on the water industry and the wastewater industry's ability to respond to an event. Um, they're great at what they do. I can just start with that. They are really good at what they do. I have more confidence in them than ever. However, there are just certain vulnerabilities that they can't overcome or that will take them a very long time to overcome. So we have to be prepared as citizens so that we can step up and take care of our families in that event. And I've heard you do a little presentation about this before. And as I was listening, the one thing that came to mind was just how much we maybe uh, take water for granted in the pipes here in our modern first world country that we're living in. I mean, I for one, sometimes I'm guilty of leaving the hot water running while I'm (laughs) washing the dishes just to keep everything going rather than rinsing them. And in an event with water uh, being in scarce supply, possibly, there's a lot of things I think people maybe take for granted that they do daily that they won't be able to do anymore. So given that overall to get into things, what is the likelihood that we could lose water for an extended period here in Summit County or in Utah? Well, I think it's really high. Uh, Just to reiterate, though, they are good at what they do. The individuals who work in the water districts, they they train, they exercise, they have backup plans. We call them redundancies. Um, they can keep you up and running uh, really well. However, it's very likely that we could lose them simply because there are uh, almost every event we could possibly experience could impact your water somehow. For instance, we always talk about the earthquake. All our pipes are buried. So no matter how good they are at their job, if those pipes move and rupture, we're going to lose water and it's going to be for a lot longer than 72 hours or 96 hours. It could take them a very long time to recover if the pipes are broken in an earthquake. If we have flooding, we're, we're realizing more and more when you have too much water, like right now you're saying we're seeing so much water coming off those mountains. If that water inundates our water system, if we have too much flooding happening, suddenly their ability to pump water in and out of our homes um, is inhibited. So we could lose water when we have a flooding event. 
We can lose water when we have a fire event. Most people don't consider that, but a lot of our water sources are up in those mountains and hills and recreation areas where if something burns over them, it contaminates and can ruin a water source. So our water could be interrupted for fire. Our water can be interrupted for a man-made event, a terrorist event, um, even a large-scale power outage could impact our water because all those facilities that need um, their engines and motors to pump and boost that water, if they're impacted, suddenly we can lose water. So there's almost, almost every disastrous event you can think of is going to be able to impact your water. So the likelihood is very high that at some point in your life, that water will be shut off and take some time to get back on. So there are some short-term ramifications for right. that and some longer-term ones. So one thing before we get into some of those immediate dangers, I just wanted to talk briefly about the misconception that people might have that someone else will provide them water in the case of an emergency. And that's probably not true, or if it is true, they may be waiting in a long line or there might not be a lot to go around, right? That's a perfect way to say it because the resources in the state, your city, county, and state emergency management and responders, they are gonna work really hard to bring water into you. But yeah, there's a misconception how quickly it can come and how long it takes to get those. Um, when Christchurch, New Zealand had an earthquake, they needed 70 alternate water sources like water buffaloes and big trailers they bring in with water and processing capabilities to help their community, but it took a long time, many, many days and even weeks to get all of those in place. And then once they are in place, you are standing in line to get your ration, your five gallons, whatever they can allot at that point. Um, and those can be very long lines and we kind of, we do have a misconception of how easy it will be. I was kind of, you made me think of that with your example you just said there. I was waiting in line to get on a cruise ship once in Puerto Rico and the ship had broken down so we were waiting in line anyway longer than usual. And fortunately, at the time the line stopped, we were inside this air-conditioned building, but it wasn't long in Puerto Rican weather in May before people on the outside who were in line started getting really thirsty oh. and really dehydrated and getting heat exhaustion. So you think standing in line to get water, one, you're gonna get thirsty doing that, but if it is, there are, there are challenges if it's winter months or summer months, but especially in the summer months with some of the heat that we have, um, you'll really feel that impact of not having even just a glass of water that's clean to drink. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that really emphasizes the importance of having our own water stored to a certain extent. Have some available to your family so that if you are in that event and you do have to go get in a line, if you had some stored at home, you're just that much further ahead that you're not exhausted or whatever can happen. So many things can happen when you're when you're low on water, for sure. So let's talk about some of those. What are the most immediate concerns that you try to make people aware of if the water goes out? So if the water goes out tomorrow, obviously you can't shower or do the dishes, but what are some other things maybe people don't think of or take into consideration. Sure. Well, we have something wonderfully built into our houses. They're called P-traps and they protect all of our water fixtures um, from a couple of different things. And my concern is that when we experience a large-scale water outage, whether the pipes are busted up because it was an earthquake or possibly this just not working and there's no pressure in the system, those P-traps can begin to dry up and those protect you from things like hydrogen sulfide and vermin and insects and other things. They protect our home all the time. We just don't realize that they're there. And if we go for, let's say it's a long-term power outage, it's several weeks to months that they're working to make repairs from an earthquake, and you're trying to stay in your home and, and take shelter there, 
those pea traps start to dry up and the fumes that you'll begin to smell. A lot of us have had pea traps dry up with their older home or tree roots or whatever may have happened. You'll smell the, it's sewer that you're smelling. It's really stinky, that rotten egg smell. And that's actually hydrogen sulfide, which is very dangerous. It's, it's classified as a chemical asphyxiant. It's similar to cyanide gases or carbon monoxide. It's dangerous. So we have to protect our homes from those fumes if those pea traps are drying up. Most people haven't ever really considered what could happen in that situation. And then long term, I think we have an appreciation for water here in the West given that sure. the last 20 years we've mostly been in a drought, but there's a lot of ramifications, a lot of snowball effects that happen if the water's off for a longer period. When you get into sanitation and hygiene, not only the water available to consume, but also what you're doing with that wastewater as well, right. right? Right. Yeah, no, you really have to consider that. And people will need to solve that problem very quickly, immediately. Your family needs to know, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we dispose of this waste? And I have some concerns that they'll... That we've made some assumptions out there or we have some solutions that we think are typically going to work that they may not translate as well as we think they're going to translate. Um, for instance, a lot of people will say, well, you can just dig a hole and kick some dirt on it. That's the most common one that I hear. Um, and I have some real concerns with that. First of all, the reason they think that that works is because it does kind of work, right? We've all been camping where there's no bathrooms. We've all gone hunting, whatever it may be. And you, you go and you dig a hole and, and it's not that fun and not that clean, but it works and everything's okay. You go on your way. Mm -hmm. The reason why it worked, though, is because we had limited people. We were up on the mountain all by ourselves on 50,000 acres or more, whatever we're doing, and we're only there for a short period of time and we're leaving. Um, and then what we don't see is when you leave, the vermin that come in, the rats and the skunks and all those creatures that smell the waste come in and they dig up that big hole and they make a mess. And where that doesn't translate is if we're trying to stay in our residential communities and our homes and on our street corners, and we have people that go out back and dig a hole and start filling it with putrefied waste, we will bring those vermin and insects into our environment that carry disease. They'll come in, they'll dig up the holes. Our own domesticated cats and dogs will be in there trying to dig up your hole. Um, it will create sinkholes. It can contaminate groundwater. Um, it, just decimates the soil around it. It's really bad news. And then what are you going to do when that hole is full? Are you going to dig another hole? How many holes are you going to dig in your backyard and fill with this nasty waste that causes disease? I got some real big issues with that solution. That concerns me. And that's another thing when people think of emergencies, the natural thing is to think of how can I take care of myself first probably or my family my family and myself right ultimately and then maybe more extended loved ones or friends and family after that the issue is is that everyone's thinking that it's really compounding quickly as you said so if everyone starts digging those holes problems that we wouldn't dream of dealing with in salt lake or even up here in park city with rats and you know coyotes and raccoons and things right. like that they're coming and being drawn to the area and then the other environmental impacts that you talked about just from having that much waste collected in an area in the in the same spot so i think when people hear that their next solution is probably well i'll go in a bucket and i won't put it in my backyard but there are some issues with that as well right yeah i think that can cause some concerns too so if we're talking and we do have to keep in mind this is a big disaster we're talking about this isn't something small this isn't if there was a localized disaster and we're having issues like that we're going to probably evacuate you bring in other solutions we're going to be okay but yeah in that big one the next solution that they jump to is a camp potty right a bucket or a, a, a little potty with a seat and my issue with that is the fact that I, I think it's safe to assume if we have experienced that really large scale devastating type earthquake or power outage and we're having troubles with we are going to have 
problems with trash collection, garbage collection. The roads will be down, fuel shortages, there'll be all kinds of issues with that. You can pretty much guarantee your garbage man may be working really hard to get to you, but he can't or she can't. And so the problem with that is, let's say you're bagging your waste. You have a camp potty and you're going to bag. Most people do not have enough bags on site. How long is it going to take to fix those pipes and get everything moving? I don't know, but it could be weeks to months. And in that case, how many bags do you have? Most people don't have very many. They're pretty expensive that fit the potties. Um, so they're not very sustainable. And secondly, once they have filled their bag with putrefied waste, what a gross concept I know, but we have to think about it, is now what are you doing with the bag? And if your trash man isn't coming, the debris itself is going to be such a big problem for our communities. But to add putrefied waste to that. Our trash men don't even pick those up. They're not sewer guys. They they don't bury. We don't bury that in our landfills. That's bad for the environment. We process it differently. So one, they don't want it. And two, they're not coming. So my concern is now we have a population or part of our community, a large part of our community that's bagging their waste and putting it with their trash and... Right or, by the gutter, right? Right, or by the gutter or by their back sheds and fences and creating these giant biohazard piles and do you think that the vermin and insects care one bit about the bag? They really don't. They're going to tear into it. And now all of a sudden we created our own biohazard again at our trash piles. And that's a problem. That spreads disease. Before we talk about what you actually can do, there's one other misconception that, well, I'll just keep flushing it. You know, I'll do my business and I'll pour some water down the toilet and it goes out the pipe right. and I don't have to worry about it. Right. But actually, if the pipe is broken, it could still be impacting you or your next door neighbor more than you might realize. Absolutely, if the pipes are broken or they just don't have pressure like we were talking about. Yeah, it's not making it back to a wastewater facility when someone is taking water. First of all, it takes a lot of water and we're just saying, oh, you're out of water for weeks to months and you're gonna start flushing it? That seems like a horrible plan to me, but some will say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. And um, if they do have the water to do it, it's not making it back to a facility. It's literally, if the pipes are broken, you could be creating a sinkhole under your own home or your neighbor home or causing up sewage back up in their basement. Some It will just go downhill from your house and come up in your neighbors. They're not going to love you for this situation. Um, and that is an environmental health concern as well. We should never be introducing water into a system that's not functioning. That's, that's bad citizenship and it's going to cause disease. So I got some concerns with that solution as well. It's kind of scary that those are some of our top solutions because we've never been through it before. We've never really had to deal with something that large scale in our community before. So yeah, that's that's scary. So now that we've basically put ourselves in <laughs> dire straits. We're in big trouble. And we don't know what to do and we need to go to the bathroom. There are some things that provide somewhat intermediate temporary fixes that don't cause as many problems that we can do safely. So let's talk a little bit about what you should be doing in this situation if you're without water for a extended about days, weeks, or even possibly a month or longer. Sure. I think one of the biggest things we should do is have the ability to communicate in an event. So if your community, hopefully what will be happening is your community will come to you with information. They'll be releasing what your emergency management in your local cities and counties want you to do. Hopefully they'll start coming out with that information. So listen so that you can plan accordingly because every community is different. Some have really high water tables, some have really low, some will have different impacts to the system. 
system. So they're going to want you to respond differently. So I would first, number one, listen to what your local emergency management, your local Department of Health and Environmental Health Association is trying to communicate with you to do. So they're going to do everything they can. And then on top of that, a best practice typically in these events is to separate the waste. Because urine when it's by itself is not actually even harmful unless you have a kidney infection or something like that. So it's much easier to dispose of if you can separate. Solid waste is a little bit trickier, but it is, again, much easier to dispose of if it's solid, dried out versus the putrefied. When I say putrefied waste, that means they're mixed together. It's the most toxic substance on earth. We do not have the ability to deal with it. So we don't want that. That will create sinkholes, really big mess. One is okay, two is okay, but three (laughs) Three is bad. 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 (laughs) I like that. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, But yeah, so that's what I would start recommending is the separation immediately is start separating and listen for what your Department of Health and your emergency management wants you to do. And another thing that came to mind when you're talking about the unique challenges faced in different communities is looking at our area and the amount of streams and rivers and reservoirs that we live by, going back to burying stuff in the, burying stuff in the backyard when you're next to the river or right. in other situations that, and obviously in a, in a disaster, people's immediate concern isn't necessarily for what's going to happen in a year. But when next year rolls around, that's a whole different story. That's a whole different story. You know, a really uh, good example, a horrible situation that demonstrates that is even the best of us that that really work to train and know what we're doing. It can go wrong very quickly. Uh, An example of that would be that Haiti earthquake in 2010. And they were sheltering a lot of people. And a professionally set up shelter was disposing of their waste improperly. They were trying to bury. Um, That ended up contaminating those estuaries like you're talking about. And um, it impacted so many people. It made people sick in that shelter. What they ultimately had was actually an outbreak of cholera. And 1.1 million people on that island after that earthquake got sick with cholera. That is a major impactor to your own, your ability to recover as a community. After the real disaster was supposedly over. Right. The earthquake, the shaking, the scary stuff, you're trying to rebuild Mm -hmm. and get people back in their homes. And you've got an outbreak of cholera. And that event, 4,500 people died of cholera after the earthquake, a secondary disaster, because people were were disposing of the waste improperly. It's very easy to contaminate estuaries and riverways. It's harder. It will make your recovery. Like you said, a year down the road, you'll still be coping with some of the ramifications of what the decisions were that your community made. So back to disposing of number two correctly, What what's some basic information about how we go about doing that? So it does involve bearing but there's a certain way and certain things you do to That's ensure right. that you just don't have a basically a porta potty in your backyard. Right, a big sinkhole of disgustingness. Yeah, um, you know, I still would say bearing is a good way to go. It could be considered a best practice if you're doing it properly, and it's just the solid dried out waste. Um, however, again, listen for what your Department of Health and your emergency management says to do, because I bet there are some communities out there that the water table is so high that they'll go, no, no, do it this way instead. However, a best practice across the globe and in a different situation is once it's dried out we actually recommend kitty litter if you're separating your waste um, using kitty litter on the waste is amazing it will help with odors it will dry out the waste completely and it's good for your soil Um, and then you could typically dig a smaller hole like a two-foot hole something not too deep something not you have to know where you're burying because you you're responsible to know where the utility lines that come into your homes and now back of your homes you got to know those things um, you got to be really careful dig a smaller hole not too big around and then you could bury just the solid kitty littered waste 
and then cover it. But one product that's really valuable when you do that is actually something called hydrated lime. Uh, gardeners have it uh, in their in its purest form. You actually have to be very careful with it. It's an acid neutralizer, so it can burn you. So nobody's going to touch that that has pregnant or any respiratory illnesses. And anybody who does work with it is going to be sure to wear personal protective equipment, gloves, uh, masks, uh, goggles. Be very, very, very careful. Um, but you can put a layer of that across the top of your hole, your waist, where the dried kitty littered uh, waste is. And when you're done, you put some hydrated lime and then mound some soil on top of it. And that'll do a couple things. It denatures the waste, so it makes beautiful soil. You're about to have the best garden soil you could ever imagine. And two, um, animals that will still smell that dried out kitty littered waste will come and start to dig. But as soon as they get to the hydrated lime, they stop. They won't have anything to do with it because it's toxic to them. It can kill them. So it will prevent animals coming in and this odors and things like that. So it's considered a best practice. But again, what's going to trump that is whatever your local health department and emergency management is saying to do because it wouldn't work in every single type of environment. But separating and then possibly burying is considered a best practice in disasters across the globe. So we talked a lot about what to do with the liquid you're putting out. But as far as water storage and the liquid you have available to put into your body, how do we go about that? How much should we be storing? And how do we manage jugs of water, whatever it might be, to make sure that if a disaster happens, we don't open up the water and, wow, this is 20 years old and it's half evaporated <laughs> and it doesn't right. taste good. I didn't do this right. Something's wrong. Now all we can do is wash our hands with it. We can't drink any of it. Right, right. Well, uh, you know, water storage is tricky, I think, because, one, they say, so the typical guideline is one gallon per person per day. Now, that's not for just drinking, of course. You only need about 64 ounces, eight cups of water a day to drink. However, if you're consuming fluids in other forms, that counts too. So you don't say, I have to have straight water for drinking. But anyway, Stock up on the Coke and Sprite. Whatever. Whatever, <laughs> whatever gets you through that disaster <laughs> and still smiling is great. But the general rule of thumb is a gallon of water per person per day. Now, how much do we need? Boy, let's talk about, you know, or think in your family, what am I planning for? How long am I planning? And then make your calculations. But to think, oh, I'm going to plan my year of water. That's a ton of water. How do you store that? How much do you do? How do you do it properly? You have to put it in a pool and never, right? yeah. it, right? <laughs> never drink it in. Don't chlorinate it. No. Um, I think it can be tricky. So here's what I would recommend is have a couple of different things you can do. First of all, have your stored water. That's really important. Um, that could be stored bottled water. Be careful of what plastics. There's a code on the bottom of plastic. It'll tell you one, two, three, four, something up to eight. Um, look it up. Make sure you're not storing in the real cheap thin plastic that can leach PVC and things like that. I don't worry too much about my bottled water that I store because we are outdoorsmen in the summer and we rotate through it so much that I don't worry about, oh, this bottled water is going to be sitting there for two years. So that one I don't stress about too much, but I do have bottled water stored so that we can rotate it. Um, I also like I love the 55-gallon barrels and the big water towers that everybody gets. I think that's a fantastic plan. Um, but that's kind of your big long-term kind of storage. And it's not transportable. If they say you do have to evacuate, it's time to go, you got to leave it. Right, there. right. You're, you can't take that with you. So I like being diverse. I have five-gallon containers, seven-gallon containers. Then I have my 55 barrels, my, my towers. So I'm diverse in what I store. Now, here's the trick. Did you know that when you fill one of those water barrels up, if you use the tap water from your house, you never ever have to treat it. You don't have to bleach it when you filled. You don't have to treat it every six months. You don't have to rotate it. Fill the qualifier on that. One, it has to come from your house water that was already treated by the water district. Who knows what they're doing? And two, it has to be put in a very clean container. So as long as your containers are new or sanitized and they're clean and healthy, fill it as full as you can, 
top it off, make sure it's nice and tight. If it's gonna freeze, you can't fill it too tight or it'll bust your barrel up. So be careful of that. But um, don't touch it again, don't mess with it. Now, if you have hard water, the hard water settlement will kind of drop to the bottom of the barrel and don't drink that part. If you have somebody who complains that they don't like stale water, I say kick them off your, your survival They're team. not thirsty <laughs> enough, right? No, I'm just kidding. But you can actually shake that water. If you have like a two liter bottle or something, shake it. It reoxygenates it and it will taste good again. Um, however, it won't hurt them. It won't kill them. Stale water won't hurt them. Um, and then, yeah, you don't have to treat it again. Now, here's what I would qualify on that. Let's say I filled my 55-gallon barrel. I put the lid on tight and I didn't mess with it because I don't want to introduce bacteria into it over the years. Um, and in seven years, I open it up and I realize, oh, I must have, my container must have been dirty. It stinks. It's off color. It has some type of a growth. I'm just going to either boil or treat it then. So I don't need to be constantly, every six months, opening it, introducing bacteria, checking it, rotating it. That's a lot of water to rotate and do that. So my recommendation would be to definitely have your own storage because you don't know, like you said, how long water lines are going to be or how long it'll take them to get stuff set up um, or how wide scale the disaster is. Have some water storage. Make it diverse. Some bottled, some small containers that you could take with you, some big containers that you could use for laundry and storage, and then don't mess with it again. Don't worry about it. It's clean. And if you end up with a little bit of contamination when you open it up, check for that, then treat it then. Chances are it will still probably be the cleanest water available. Right, it will be greater than anything you're going to be able to gather. But then in order to be diverse, you should also understand how to purify water. If you do have to gather, it will be real tricky because we are going to have contaminants in those estuaries and waterways. They will be contaminated with all kinds of contaminants from the silt movement and things, plus the waste that's being dumped in different places. So gathering is going to be tricky, but having that knowledge part of your plan and that ability is smart. It's wise to have backup. And like any type of savings, whether it's money or food storage, or in this case, water storage, you can start small. You know, you don't need to go out and buy a 55-gallon drum today if you can't, but even having a couple cases of bottled water in the appropriate plastic bottles will make a big difference in the event that that's your only resource for Absolutely. Water. And not everybody even has room for a 55-gallon barrel. Where am I going to put that? How am I going to do that? But I absolutely agree with that. It's the same principle with, like you said, uh, financial storage or food or water. Start with where you can. Do the best that you can. Have an emergency pack with you or in your car or somewhere available quickly. Um, and have a little bit so that you can start off good and start off solid. I agree with that principle. Well, Catherine, you've shared a lot of good information today. Just to wrap things up, is there anything, the one message that you want everyone to take away from this, what would it be? I believe that we can all do something. And and usually, sometimes, and most of the time, your greatest asset is going to be your knowledge, your understanding that putrefied waste is really dangerous and we shouldn't be digging a hole and kicking dirt on it. Um, just start with knowledge. Have a plan. Talk to your family about it. And, and when you start there, build small and, and we'll all be better off for that. We'll be a better community and better able to fully recover from some type of disaster if we can all do that. Well, thank you very much. Anytime. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Summit County HealthCast. For news, program information, and more, visit us at summitcountyhealth.org. Stay healthy, Summit County.